You guys may be seated. We're going to be reading from Haggai, Haggai chapter 1 today. Haggai chapter 1. If you have kids, we have kids church going on downstairs. And uh, your, your kiddos can go. We have it for preschoolers uh, through second grade. Uh, and we have stuff for babies downstairs in the nursery. So if you have kids, you want to, um, want to send them there, that's great. If you want to keep them in here, that's also great too. We love having kiddos in here. reading today from, if you're my husband, it would be Haggai. If you're me, it's Haggai. Not sure about the Hebrew. <laughs> um, Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has yet not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that only in you do we have security. We thank you that we carry nothing with us this life and to the next. And we pray that you would just impress on our hearts that you are all sufficient for us. And when we put our trust in you, when we put our lives in your hands, when we decrease and you increase, then that we are truly filled with all that we need. Please bless Matt today and speak through him and open our, our ears and our hearts to receive your word. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jordana. Reading from Haggai, hey guy. Hey guys, wherever you guys want. Uh, that's the... Uh, that's the, uh, if you haven't been to the book of Haggai, uh, uh, it's one of those books that oftentimes it's kind of like the middle states of America. We know they're there, but we're not sure where exactly where they are. Um, it, you know, like if you, I'm sorry, you people who are from the middle of America right there. Um, but uh, but we we're like, we know, we know Missouri and Kansas and Oklahoma or somewhere, but we're not quite sure or wherever. So um, anyways. Uh, Haggai is three books back from the end of the Old Testament. If you go to Malachi, Matthew, you go back one book, there's Malachi. If you go back another book, there's Zechariah. If you go back one more book, that's Haggai. It's just two pages. It's just two chapters. Um, he was brief. Maybe I could learn something from him. So, uh, as, as you know, we're, we're, we're coming into a new book. Um, we're, we're calling it Glory from Ruins. And there's a reason why we're calling it Glory from Ruins. It's because of the context of the book of Haggai, what it's about. Uh, many of you guys have probably read the book of Haggai in like one or two days in your Bible reading plan, and maybe you haven't spent a lot of time there. Um, I had never spent an extended amount of time in Haggai before um, we decided to, I decided to, to teach through this, and man, oh man, I have fallen in love with Haggai. It, has, it is an exciting book. It is, it is, it is jam-packed full of just so much truth and uh, we're going to unpack that over the next few weeks. So some of you guys are probably like, wow, 
man, I don't, you know, Old Testament prophets sometimes is really hard to understand. And really, I don't think Haggai is that hard to understand. There's not any apocalyptic uh, pictures in here. There's not anything, whatever. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to understand. Um, and uh, and so, so as we do this, but before we get there, I want to kind of, uh, uh, for those of you guys, Many of you guys, you, you've heard a lot of stories of the Old Testament. You've learned, heard a lot about different, different time periods and things like this, but maybe you, have, you struggle to put together the arc of Scripture. So what I want to do is I want to show you where Haggai is in the arc of Scripture. So I'm going to take you back to the beginning, all right? To the beginning, there was God and there was only God. You guys remember this? God, nothing else. He created uh, uh, the world and everything in it, including humankind in his own image for his glory. That's Adam, that's Eve. Adam and Eve have children. You guys remember the Cain and Abel situation. Then you remember, uh, then you remember Seth. And then as it, as it goes forward, we see uh, not long after that, there's Noah, um, who, uh, who God saves from this flood because, uh, because Noah was trusting the Lord. And then moving forward a few more generations, we see Abraham. Abraham uh, was, a, was a guy who uh, trusted the Lord. He left his land. He followed God, and he, he went to the land that God had promised him. That it, uh, um, he, he, he comes there. Um, he has a promised child. That is Isaac. Uh, I, Isaac has a, uh, once again, also lives in this place, goes to Egypt, does some things. Isaac has a child. His name is Jacob. Jacob has a child. Uh, uh, Jacob has 12 uh, children. One of them is named Joseph. Joseph gets sold by his brothers. You guys remember Joseph's technicolor coat? You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, he gets sold uh, into Egypt. He, uh, he, he ends up, uh, through a crazy amount of circumstances, he ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. Um, there's a famine in the land. Joseph uh, saves his family and much of the world, ultimately, uh, through, through Egypt's granaries. And uh, he invites his family to come live with him in Egypt. They live there as guests of the Pharaoh. But uh, 400 years later, uh, Pharaoh, th there's a new Pharaoh. This Pharaoh does not remember, uh, uh, doesn't have a love for the Jewish people, for the, for the Hebrew people there. And uh, he's enslaved them. Uh, enter Moses. You guys all probably have heard or watched a movie or, you know, or, or read the book of Exodus. That's, that's this whole scenario where Moses leads the people out of, uh, out of Israel through a whole bunch of situations, including uh, in, including the, the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Ultimately, they end up at Sinai. They At Sinai, God gives them the Ten Commandments. God shows himself to his people. And uh, and then ultimately, uh, the people are supposed to go to the land that, that he had given to Abraham, the land that was called the Promised Land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They get there. They send some spies in just to check out the land. They, they, the land is everything that God said it was. It was flowing with milk and honey. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But there were big people there, and they got scared, so they didn't go. They, they decided, and they wandered in the wilderness. God uh, cursed this, that generation to wander in the wilderness for a whole generation until that generation died, except for the two guys who said they would go in. That's, that's Joshua, that's Caleb. And then the next generation, they go, they cross the Jordan through miraculous circumstances. They, they enter in, and they take the, the, the conquest of the land. Joshua, they take almost all, uh, like not every bit of the land they got a promise to him, but they take, they take a lot of the land. They, they ultimately, uh, uh, the 12 tribes, they spread out all over uh, what is modern day Israel, uh, uh, enter, enter what we call the judges period. The judges period is a long period. It's kind of a, 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 a unhealthy period. It starts off with judges who were trusting the Lord. It ends with judges who were really, really far from God. And Israel was kind of just spiraling downward and downward. And uh, ultimately, uh, we, we see as the book of uh, Kings star, or book of Samuel starts that, uh, that, that Israel was desiring a king. They wanted to be like the other lands around them. So God gave them a king like the other lands around them. He gave them Saul. Saul was a, uh, uh, Saul was a uh, at times was an okay king, but mostly was a bad king. He, uh, he, he did some pretty uh, re reprehensible stuff along with a couple of good things. 
um, but ultimately Saul, uh, be, it became all about him and his glory. Saul uh, uh, ultimately dies in battle. Um, uh, and, and then uh, the next king, you guys all know this guy, David, comes in. He, he is a, he's a, although he does some bad things, he is a considered a good king um, because he trusts the Lord, he loves the Lord. Ultimately, he has a son named Solomon who, who succeeds him. Solomon builds the temple of God, if you remember. Uh, so they had, taken, they had taken Jerusalem. He builds the temple of God there. Um, it, it is this big, beautiful, opulent temple. It's wonderful and amazing. And then Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, if you guys remember Rehoboam. Uh, he was not like his father. He wasn't a really good king. He was, in fact, he, he kind of, uh, he was the King George of ancient Israel. Basically, he, uh, he, was, he was levying taxes and increasing the burden upon the northern kingdom. Then ultimately a secession happens because uh, Jeroboam and the northern kingdom, uh, uh, the northern ten tribes said, no taxation without representation, kind of. Um, they said, no, we will, not, we will not be under your authority. So they set up their own kingdom there. Um, that, that's, that, come, that comes the split kingdom here. And then we, in the split kingdom, we have Israel who has just basically uh, the, northern, the northern ten tribes of Israel basically a succession of bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king. There's just, there's no really, really redeeming figures in there. We, this is when Elijah prophesied in the north. There's a lot of great things going on there. Um, uh, ultimately, that leads to what we call the Assyrian captivity. There was an Assyrian, uh, um, God punishes his people like he said he would back in Deuteronomy. If they didn't follow him, the, Isra the Israeli, Israelis weren't following him, so God punishes them by uh, sending the Assyrians to destroy the northern ten tribes. The northern ten tribes they get, they get wiped out, they get taken by the Assyrians, um, spread out all over the empire there, the Assyrian empire. Um, but the Assyrians don't take Judah um, through some miraculous circumstances. Um, God saves Judah because Judah was still on, on some level following God, uh, uh, especially uh, some of the kings. Judah has some good kings, some bad kings. Uh, they, they, they have good and bad. Um, ultimately, the last good king was a guy named Josiah. Josiah was the boy king who became a follower of God, followed God, ultimately made a bad decision in the end of his life to fight against Pharaoh Necho, even though God had told him not to. He goes and he fights. He dies there. His sons are not super good at kinging. They're pretty bad at kinging. And uh, ultimately, uh, they lead Israel down some terror. Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, uh, uh, and Zedekiah, these, these guys, they, they ultimately lead uh, Israel down a really, really dark path. And uh, ultimately, leads, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and uh, takes Jerusalem at first, just kind of uh, takes it as a vassal kingdom, but uh, they, the Jews, they don't stay under his thumb. They revolt, and then they revolt again and revolt again, and ultimately Nebuchadnezzar comes back with his armies and destroys Jerusalem brick by brick. He tears down the temple. He tears down the walls. He tears down everything. He makes Jerusalem a wasteland, all right? And he, this is when Daniel, uh, if you guys remember when Daniel happened, he takes all the young people. He takes all the talent of, of, of the nation. He takes them to Babylon, and, and he makes them uh, live there. And, uh, and they're living, and, and uh, this is, by the way, this all happens during the time of Jeremiah's prophecy. And Jeremiah prophesied that this exact thing would happen. That Nebuchadnezzar would come, and he would destroy Jerusalem, and they would be in Babylon for about 70 years. And this happens. God, he, he, takes, he, takes, he, he takes Jerusalem, and for about 70 years, um, they are in Babylon. Now, if you remember the book of Daniel, you can, re can remember the book of history, uh, it, the parts of history in Daniel, where uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and then there's some not-so-great kings. We, we learn about Belshazzar, who ultimately uh, is taken over. Uh, 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 his, his kingdom is taken over then. And uh, when Belshazzar's kingdom is taken over, a guy, uh, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, when their kingdom is taken over, there is uh, a new guy in charge, and this guy's name is Cyrus. He's a Persian. All right, he, the Persian uh, Empire kind of kind of uh, uh, overtakes the Babylonian Empire, becomes the superpower of the day. Uh, king Cyrus is a lot different than um, the, the Assyrian kings. He's a lot different than the 
than the kings of, uh, uh, of Babylon. In fact, he's considered to be a pretty gracious ruler. And uh, one of the things he does in order to ingratiate himself to his new people that he's taken over is he lets them, all these peoples who had been taken, all these people, whatever, he lets them return to their homeland. And he lets them, he in fact encourages them to rebuild their temples and encourages kind of a religious freedom aspect. Um, and he, he doesn't do this just for the Jews. He does this in general. In fact, if you go to, if you're ever in London and you go to the, the museum there, the London Museum, uh, you'll see in it, they have this thing. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder, all right? And it's, a, it's this little cylinder, and this is how they wrote back there. They wrote in cuneiform, which was a language there. And they would write on, they wrote on the cylinder. And on the, there's a cylinder there that is surviving from ancient times during Cyrus's reign, where Cyrus wasn't actually granting the Jews here. He was granting another group of people, but he was granting another group of people the ability to go back to their land and rebuild their temples. This is exactly the, what he does for the people uh, of, of God. It, it, as as uh, If you go to Ezra chapter 1, uh, in the first year of King Cyrus, this would have been, he came into power in 539, this would have been in 538. In, five, in the first year of King Cyrus, he uh, issues a decree that allows the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. In fact, he gives over all the temple items that were taken by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. So all the, all, all the goblets, all the censers, all the everything, he gives it all back and, they, and then he gives them an edict that they can go back and rebuild this temple. So about 50,000 people come back. So imagine, that's a pretty big group of people. And they go back with a royal edict. They go back with uh, even the ability to get, uh, uh, he even finances some of this uh, through them, uh, 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 through, through, through the kingdom. And uh, they, they get back there to Jerusalem in 538. And, uh, and, and the, like I said, these, these 50,000 uh, 50, people come. Among them, there are some pretty prominent people that we'll see. There's Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a guy um, that, by the way, if you're looking for a child's name, that's a great name, Zerubbabel. <laughs> Um, but Zerubbabel is, uh, he's the son of Sheltiel, and he is the uncrowned king. He is the person who is in the Davidic line. He should be king by rights, yet he is, uh, he is not king, all right? Yet, yet, he, yet he is not king because they are a vassal state of, of Persia. He's, he's appointed as governor there. He's the uncrowned king. You think of him like an Aragorn-type figure. He's, a, he's, the, he's the uncrowned king. Then there is Jeshua, or we'll see, in, he's called Joshua also. Jeshua or Joshua, the high priest. This guy, um, this, we, when we read about him, we understand that he is a, he's in the line of the high priest. He is a, he, he, he loves God and he's, he's following God. Then there's, uh, we, we learn about a lot of other guys, but another two guys that we want to, we'll, we'll know a lot about. Haggai is one of the returners. He's mentioned by name as, a, as one of the early returners, the one of the 50,000. And Zechariah, these are two prophets of God. They have books of the Bible um, written by them. There's Haggai and then the next book will be Zechariah. Um, that you'll see in this in this time frame. So, and uh, so when they get back there, they return and then they get to work rebuilding the temple of God. This is what they were longing for. Just remember, they wanted to re this. The temple was the place where God's presence was, where, where people could enter into the presence of God, where they could worship Him properly. They could worship Him in the way that God had said. And uh, the whole book of Daniel. You remember Daniel? What did he do three times a day? He would pray towards Jerusalem, and he would pray that God would restore Jerusalem, that God would restore his temple. The Jews for 70 years were longing for, to rebuild this temple. They were praying that God would allow them to come back. They were, their hearts were steadfastly looking towards this. And uh, when, God, when God opens that door, they come back and they immediately get to work. They, they start building this temple, and they, 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 uh, they, it says they build the foundation. What that is is uh, the temple is kind of like on a mountain, and if you go to Israel now, you'll see that there are these giant retaining walls around the temple. So it's kind of on a hill. They build these walls so they can make a big flat area on the top. 
And uh, so they spend a lot of time, uh, they spend their first couple of years building these retaining walls, building them up, basically making the area so they could do that because, uh, because the destruction of Jerusalem was complete. They had ripped down even the retaining walls to the temple. So, uh, so, they, so, so they build this foundation of the temple and, uh, and when, it, when it gets built, and they also had built an altar, the altar right there on the top where it should be. And that's all they had done. And, uh, when, but when the foundation was finished, they praised God. We see this at the end of chapter three. There's this great praising of God. And it's interesting because people are excited and they're praising him. But the old, old guys, the guys who had seen the first temple, they were weeping because just the, the foundations of this temple compared to the foundations of the other temple, they don't even compare. This thing is kind of ramshackle, not nearly as well put together as the older one. The other people, the, the, the people who were, uh, the, the young people, they were excited. They were praising God. But the old people, they were weeping because uh, they, they saw that the glory of this temple was going to be much diminished from Solomon's temple. So um, enter Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, we see something interesting happen. They've been working. They've been building. They built the altar. They built the retaining walls. They're ready to build the temple. They're ready to get it all, the whole thing erected. And uh, Ezra chapter 4, we're going to read the first uh, four verses uh, of Ezra chapter 4. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard uh, that the returned exiles were building the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's, uh, father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the day Esarhaddon, um, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. All right, so let's, let's be clear what's going on. We'll, we'll, we'll continue on in just a second. These guys, the people who live, the people who are like the proto-Samaritans, remember the Samaritans in the New Testament? These are like their ancestors, the peoples who were there, these people who had come and were, were and they, they moved here. And like a lot of people, when they moved to a new place, they, they thought to worship the local deity. And so they were kind of making off uh, 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 worship to Yahweh, but not in a proper way. They didn't genuinely understand who God was. They were, but they on some level were trying to worship Yahweh, but they were not genuinely believers. Just to give it, make it clear so you can kind of understand, it would be the difference between, say, uh, a Baptist and a Mormon. They might use a lot of the same terms. They might have a lot of the same names for things, but we know there's a very distinct difference between their understanding of who God is and what salvation is and what our understanding of what God is and salvation is. And though there might be some overlap in terms, there's not, a, there's not an overlap in our actual belief. And that's what was going on here with these people, these proto-Samaritans. They, they believed in God, but they didn't genuinely understand what it means to serve him. So they said, we want to come help build this. We want to take part in this. We want to be a part of what you're doing. All right, so that, that's what they were saying. Now verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord and the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So they say, no, we're not going to allow, within our camp, we're not going to allow it to be a part of this project, people who are not genuinely worshiping God in spirit and truth, people who are genuinely committed to him. So they say, no, they, they, they say no to this. Now, verse 4. Then the people of the land, that is those, those, those people who are around the proto-Samaritans, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bribed the counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of King Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, that's where we are in the book of Haggai. We're, we're going to start in the second year of King Darius. All right, so... All the while, so here's what here's what goes on. They build this thing, they get the altar up, and then they're 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 starting on this project. They're starting to build the temple. They're they're getting there, and then uh, they get discouraged. 
they, they get afraid and they stop. Have you guys ever had a project like that? You start, you're working on it, you got, you got it going on, maybe you get that thing taken apart in your workshop and then it sits there for a year or two and then it just becomes like, I don't even know, I, 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 I just wish I would just throw it away. Or, or maybe you're building something in your backyard. My dad was building a deck for three years in our backyard. It, uh, um, it finally, it, it was finished after three years, but it, it was it was a seven day project. You know, so uh, so this is this is the kind of stuff that uh, that can happen. We can have these unfinished projects, and that's what's going on. Uh, the people of God had had started the project, but they hadn't finished it. Um, so this is uh, for 16 years. From 530, uh, from 536, when they dedicated this temple, all the way to 520, which is when this, when the book of Haggai starts, they, nothing's been going on. The temple's just been sitting dormant. All right? So enter Haggai. All right? The book of Haggai, the whole book of Haggai takes place in four months. Haggai really does a good job. He dates his, he, he dates his prophecies. I, I like that because then you know exactly when it is. All right? Like, we, he knows, we know exactly when this happens. In fact, we know that it was on, uh, on August 29th was his first prophecy. August 29th of 520. Alright, so we know the exact day when the word of the Lord came to him. So, let's let's get into verse 1 of Haggai 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord uh, came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, to the, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. So let's, let's unpack verse 1 as we go through. Um, who is Haggai? Um, I mentioned before, he's one of the guys who returned. His name means feast. He's a prophet. And we know that in the latter half of 520, he has a special anointing from God. He presided over a great movement of God during the, uh, his preaching caused a great movement of God, and, uh, and which is awesome. His, um, his life kind of reminds me, we also get the idea that he might be older because he's a returner. It's already been 20 years. He was like, he's considered a head of household already by then. So it's likely that he's an older man, maybe in his 50s or 60s, we don't know. And uh, and he's been prophesied for a long time, but this is the only recording we get of him. He's kind of like Nathan before this. Nathan is a prophet we know, spoke the word of the Lord, was a great guy, but he doesn't have any books written by him. Similarly, um, similarly uh, up to this point, Haggai has just been a prophet. He's been speaking the word of God, but God gives him a special anointing here, a special anointing. And this kind of reminds me of, uh, this happens sometimes for men of God, for, for men and women of God. God decides to pour out his spirit on someone's ministry for certain periods of time in special ways. In 1858, a guy named David Morgan woke up as a pastor in Wales. In October of 1858, uh, this guy says, he went to bed like a lamb and he woke up like a lion. All of a sudden, God had poured out his spirit on this guy in 1858. And this guy who had been pastoring a local congregation in Wales of less than 100 people, um, God poured out his spirit, and this guy was able to preach and teach in a way that was, uh, I don't know that it was especially dynamic or powerful, but the spirit was working in and through him. God gave him uh, supernatural ability to memorize, remember things incredibly during, the, during this. And for two years, God used him in an incredible way. More than 100,000 people in Wales, which was only about a million people at the time, more than 100,000 people over these two years gave their lives to Jesus, all right, through through his and other people's ministries. It wasn't just going on, by the way, there. It was going on in uh, its first Spurgeon in London and Aberystwyth up in, uh, all, all there. in 1859. God was doing stuff all over the UK, but especially in Wales, especially through David Morgan. And two years later, he goes to bed, according to him, like a lion and wakes up like a lamb. And then he goes back and is preaching at his congregation for the rest of his life as a just just, just like a normal pastor. Something similar might have happened with Haggai. 
You've been preaching, you've been teaching, you've been ministering, and God decided at, at the end of 520 BC, in the first year or second year of King Darius, to pour out his spirit on, on Haggai's ministry. And this is the recording of that. Alright? So now the next thing I want you to notice in verse 1. So we know who Haggai is, we know what he's doing here. And in uh and next thing you notice is it says that uh, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. This is important. This is not Haggai's message. This is not his message. He is not, he is the messenger. He's a mailman. He's someone giving us what God has said. This is what preachers do. They share the word of the Lord. They don't make things up in and of themselves. It's not about being funny. It's not about being cool. It's not about being anything else. It's about sharing the word of God faithfully. This is what this guy did. Now, who's this letter to? This, 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 who is this message to? Well, it's to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. We know that we, we said before he's the uncrowned king. It's to Joshua or Jeshua, the high priest. Um, uh, these guys, these, these are the leaders in Israel, all right? The high priest and the, 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 the governor. These are the people who should be leading the effort. And these people have become discouraged. These people have become afraid. And for 16 years, they have not obeyed God's call on their life. For 16 years, they've been waiting around. They've been sitting around. They've been sitting on their hands. And they've been saying something like this. The time has not yet come for us to build the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come. So Haggai's message is directed at them. He's, he's preaching this message. His, his audience is two people. His congregation for this message is two people. Now, by extension, it's the whole, all the people of Israel because these people are the leaders of those people. But his, his congregation is two people. That's the high priest and that's, that's, that's the rabble. And, uh, and why, why is his message directly to them? I think it's because similar, uh, similar with churches, as the leaders go, so go the church. As the leaders, go, as, a, as a leader of an organization goes, so goes the organization. Um, now, it's not perfectly this way. We know we know of times when that's not the case. But in general, we can say that if a if a church's pastor is unhealthy, if he's teaching untruths, if he is if he's a scoundrel, then it's likely that, that church is not healthy. It, 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 it's very likely. Similarly, um, with Zerubbabel and Joshua. So, verse two it says, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: The people say." The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So let's, far, let's first, let's focus in on that first phrase. It says, the Lord of hosts. So what does this mean? We, we, we hear this. Uh, you guys, some of you guys, you've been studying the scripture for a while. You'll know what this word means. It means the God of angel armies. That's what that word literally means. The Lord, the God of angel armies. That, so he starts off by saying the God of angel armies. He's got armies of angels at his disposal. There is no power on earth that in any way can, can even match even an iota of the power of him and, and even, even, his, even his army of angels. So he is, the, he is the one to be feared above all else. Starting with this kind, of, uh, this kind of phrase by calling himself the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. He says, these people. That's the next phrase. These people. All right? What? It's, it's interesting. Most of the time in the Old Testament, God says, my people. My people. My people. He's using an impersonal. But why? I think it's because they've abandoned the work of the Lord. He uses. He says, these people, not my people, although they, they are his, but he's, he's using this impersonal there. We'll see later. I don't want to get too far into it. But later, he's as they do the work, he's going to say, I am with you, which is a picture of being personal, personally connected with them. But as they're disobeying, he's, he's looking at them as these people. These people say the time has not yet come. Remember, they got discouraged. And they gave up. 
Now, they might have masked their disobedience to God in spiritual language. I mean, have you guys ever done this before? You mask your disobedience to God by churching up your language. They said, the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. They haven't said, we're not going to build the house. It's just, time's not right. That's, that's where they are. And for 16 years, the time wasn't right. I think of, uh, in my home state of Florida, there's, a, there's an interstate called I-4. And uh, any of you guys have been on I-4, you've probably seen what they call the eyesore on I-4. There's a giant building that they built that they started to build in 2001 and they ran out of money and the building is half built and it's giant and it's sitting half built um, and it's been there for 20 years. It's still not finished today. Still today, that building is not finished. The eyesore and I-4, it's, it's one of these things where, uh, and, and it's kind of a joke all throughout Florida. And I think similarly for these 16 years, God's name was becoming a joke among the nations. Oh, yeah, the, the temple, the temple that they were going to rebuild. Remember when they came back and they said they're going to build this temple? Oh, and they, they poured a foundation. Good on them. It wasn't purely that these people were being disobedient. It's that God's name on some level was being drugged through the mud among the nations by, by these people not being obedient to him because they got discouraged, because they got afraid, because they gave up. I think of uh, Augustine. You guys, you guys remember Augustine's famous prayer? It says, uh, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. God, give me chastity, but not yet. God, give us your temple, but, but not yet. God, we want your presence. God, we want you to be with us. We want to do things for you, but, but the time hasn't come yet. Verses three and four. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. And he, it, it's interesting. He, so he, the first message was, what, what was the first message? Uh, uh, you said the time is not yet. And now God's response to the time, their time is not yet. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So evidently, for those 16 years that they were not building the house of the Lord, while they didn't have time or they got too discouraged or they didn't have enough money or they didn't have whatever, that they, they weren't doing that. Evidently, they had enough time, money, and effort to build lavish houses for themselves. This word paneled here, just, just, just it, it gives the idea of luxury and opulence. In fact, the only time that's used is for the, the paneling inside the temple, this word panel, and for the king, the palaces of kings. Those are the only two times in Hebrew that this word panel is used besides right here. So these people, Zerubbabel and Sheltiel, they built palaces for themselves, but they hadn't built the temple of God. I think there might even be some sarcasm in this. Maybe this is me reading into this. But I think that God, like there, there's a note, I think there's a note of sarcasm in God's, uh, in, in God's reply to them when they say it's not yet time. Oh, it's not time, but is it time for you to build your paneled houses? The people had prioritized their comfort and security overdoing the work of the Lord. They were focused on their houses, their food, their drink, their clothing, their money. Remember, I want you to get this. The 50,000 people that came back to Israel, these were the most devoted followers of God. These weren't, these weren't wayward Jews. These were the Jews who said, pick me, I'll go back, I'll brave danger, I'll build the king, I'll, I'll, I'll rebuild the house of the Lord, I want to do this. These were the people who signed up for the mission. These were followers of Yahweh, genuine, serious followers, followers of Yahweh. These are the people who were disobeying God. These were the people who got too focused on their comfort. It's easy to think about those people. It's easy to think about them being crazy. No, if, this, if they would have been modern day people, they would have been the people who were at church all the time. 
That's who they are. That's who this message is to. Now, now into verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. He gives them one message. One imperative. By the way, this should end with an exclamation point. I don't know why it's not there, because it's an imperative. It said, he says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Examine your heart. You people who say you love me, you people who say you follow me, you people, you have spent all this time building your houses, your palatial estates, focusing on your comfort, and you have not spent any time on building my house, glorifying me among the nations. Check your heart. Examine your motives. Or as Ice Cube would say, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Verse 6. And then he goes on to explain in verse 6 what this kind of lifestyle will lead to. You have sown much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. This verse is meant to make it clear that seeking security and comfort above God, seeking security and comfort apart from God is a futile endeavor. He says you will toil at work but you will never feel like you harvest enough. Your food, the food and drink you are, you are seeking will never genuinely satisfy you. Your, you. The attire you think will bring you comfort and warmth will never genuinely warm you. And you, you, you will never have enough money to feel like you have enough. You'll always feel like your bag has holes in it. Basically, he's asking the people of Judah, how's living for yourself working out for you? Are you feeling fulfilled? Are you feeling, or are you feeling empty and like you don't have enough? So, verses one through six. This is what Haggai. This is how Haggai starts this book. So, what can we take from a text like this? What does God want us to hear from the book of Haggai? Well, I want to start with a question for you, based on this text. The question is: Are you all in, totally committed? Is Jesus? all you are living for. I think there are a lot of people who would call themselves Christians who come to church regularly, but this is the way they really, they, they, the actuality of the way they view their relationship with Jesus. They hear the gospel, they hear that Jesus will save them, they hear this, and they say, they invite Jesus into their life. They, they, it's like they pull up the car of their life and they see Jesus on the side of the road and they say, hey Jesus, hop in, and they pop the trunk. And they say, get in the trunk. And then they close the trunk and they say, oh, well, when we have a flat tire or when something bad happens, um, we'll get you out and you can help us. You can help us fix our tires and stuff and then pop back in the trunk, Jesus. We're glad to have you along the trip. I think a lot of us, we want to be our own lords and we want to be our own kings. And we think that if we just say, hey, uh, uh, I'm a Christian. Hey, Jesus, I do believe you died on the cross. Like, we think that's enough. The truth is, is the Bible makes it very clear that we must surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord. We must give ourselves to him. If we don't give ourselves to him, like believing that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, that is important. That is vital to you understanding the gospel. But that, that in and of itself, demons believe that. They're not Christians. You might, being a Christian means surrendering your life to him. It means total surrender. Giving myself to you, saying, Jesus, I am all in. So, 
Is living for Jesus and glorifying him with your entire life your highest priority? If you genuinely, genuinely took an audit of your life, and uh, I want you to ask yourself, does your, does your time, the time you spend on things, does it reflect a life that is fully committed to Jesus? If you audited your time, does, does that reflect that? Does your bank account reflect a valuation of building the kingdom as your highest priority? When you look at yourself, can you honestly say, I'm giving myself completely and totally and utterly to Jesus? If you can't say that, I, you're probably in company with Zerubbabel and Joshua. And, and God is saying to us all to consider our ways. See, they were called to build a temple. They were called, Joshua and Zerubbabel were called to build uh, this temple in Jerusalem. We are not called to build a temple in Jerusalem. We're called to, to build a much more glorious temple than the temple in Jerusalem. We're called to build the temple made of living stones that is the body of Christ. We're called to be the place where the world sees Jesus. The world will see Jesus through us. We have been called and commissioned by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, starting here in Kodiak and going around the world. Yet many of us look at the task in front of us and make excuses as to why the time is not now to go. Why the time is not now to make disciples at my workplace. Why the time is not now, why I shouldn't, why, why I can't right now make disciples at my workplace because it might affect this promotion that I have coming up. Why, why I can't do this because these people will ostracize me or they will push me out. Maybe you're making excuses like, I'll do that in retirement. Or maybe you say, when I get married, one day we'll do this together. Or when my kids are grown and out of the house. You say the time is not now. I would say the time is now. We are called to grow and make or make and grow disciples in our homes, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our city, our nation, and among the nations. This task is not finished. And if you find yourself right now making an excuse why you cannot participate in making and growing disciples, I would implore you to consider your ways, to examine your heart, to look at your heart and to see if you are fully committed to Jesus. Or have you been bu busy building paneled houses for yourself? Have you been busy seeking your own comfort while the world around you lies in ruins? This message is for you, committed Christian, who is not serving the Lord with all of your heart, who's making excuses why I can't serve him, who says, I don't have enough time, who says, I don't have enough money, who says, there's no way I can really do this. I would say to you, consider your ways. I've met a lot of people who say something like this. They'll say, well, I don't know if God's calling me to serve in X ministry or God's calling me to serve in Y ministry. I don't know if, if, if the time is right for me to serve here or for me to serve there while they're not serving anywhere. Let's be clear. They're followers of Jesus and they're not really serving anywhere. They might serve once a year at like an event or something. And they, 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 they've not given any of their time or they're, they're saying, I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. Did you ask the Lord if it was, if it was time for you to watch Netflix this week? Did you ask the Lord whether it was time for you to spend hours doing this or that thing? 
There are needs in the body of Christ and there are needs in this community that we can meet, that we, where we can show and share the gospel of grace to one another and to a lost and dying world. We can help rebuild the ruins around us. We can be a part of what God is doing. But a lot of us are seeking our own comfort. We're really busy paneling our houses. The truth is that nothing we seek on our own will satisfy us. Nothing we are seeking apart from God. Our hunger will never really be sated. Our thirst will, uh, will, 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 never really be, uh, will, will never really be taken care of. Our clothes will never really comfort us. Our money will never make us feel like we have enough or we are safe. What verse 6 is telling us in this text is that, is that none of these things will actually cause us to be satisfied. But the beauty is that Jesus counsels us to come and eat the bread of life. He counsels us to drink of living water that will quench our soul's thirst, to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ that is like a perfect wedding garment, to receive gold purified by fire that neither moth nor rust can destroy. The beauty is that in Jesus, what you are truly longing for those deep soul cravings that you have can, well, that's the only place these things can truly be filled. In Jesus, we can have true rest. In Jesus, we can have eternal security. This passage brings to life what Jesus said when he said, whoever seeks his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I've used this term all in. In poker, that term, that, that, it, for those of you guys who are holy and have never actually played poker, unlike me, that term means um, it, it, it's what, when you have a hand that you think is definitely going to win, and you put all of your money in, every bit of it, on that hand. And you say, I'm all in. If I lose, I lose everything. And if, I'm, if I win, I win everything. Jesus is calling us to be all in on him to put every chip we have in on him. To not hedge our bets, but to sit. Not to seek anything else, but to seek him, because he is worthy. So, I want you to consider your ways. Are you, is Jesus really your king? Is he who you're really living for? If you examined your life, would you say, yeah, I, while I fail, while I fall, while I turn to the left or the right, I am genuinely living for him. I am truly committed to him. Or you say, you know what? I, I, I believe that Jesus died and was risen from the dead, but I have not given my life to him. I'm living for myself. I'm not living for him. If that's you, I would challenge you to, this morning as we sing in, the, in just a minute to, to truly surrender your life to Jesus. To say, Jesus, I give you my all. I am all in with you. Jesus, I give my life to you. For those, some of you guys, you're like Zerubbabel and Joshua. They, these guys believed in God. They left everything. They went back to rebuild this temple. And they got discouraged and distracted. Some of you guys have become discouraged. Maybe you're too afraid. Maybe you're afraid that you'll be ostracized at work. Maybe you're, you're afraid that you're, some family member will push you out or something like this. I don't know what it is, but you become discouraged or you become distracted. You become so enamored with, uh, with, with getting something or doing something on this earth that you become distracted from God's mission. God has a, God has a mission for you like he does for Zerubbabel and Joshua. And that is to make and grow disciples in Kodiak and around the world. To use your time, your talent, and your treasure to do that for his glory and his glory alone. 
If, you, if something's holding you back from that, I would challenge you today to consider your heart, to examine your ways. And to whatever that is, to give that to the Lord. If you are unwilling to let go of everything and cling to Christ, if there's something you want to hold on to, if there's something you're not willing to let go of, that thing right now is acting as your true God. That's the thing that you're unwilling to let go of. I challenge you to let it go and to give yourself completely to God, trusting that what he will give you is better than anything your heart could give yourself because he is a true and loving God. He's the only one who can actually satisfy those deep cravings of your soul. So we're going to pray. And if you're someone and you say, I know I've not given Jesus my life. Maybe you're a child. Maybe you're an adult. Maybe you're someone who's been in church forever. I would challenge you this morning as I pray to just say, Jesus, I give myself to you. I am yours. No special prayer. Like I said before, it's a posture of your heart. And if that's you, I would challenge you to talk to me after the service and say, I'm all in with Jesus. I've given myself to him. And you know what? I'm going to help you walk through your next steps in your faith. And if you're someone like Zerubbabel, like I said, like, like Joshua, I challenge you to take these moments. Don't sing. Sit down, pray, and say, and consider your ways. Examine your heart. If you know there are things that are in the way, literally do work with the Lord this morning. Don't leave until you've done work with the Lord this morning. We'll wait. Don't worry. We won't turn the lights off on you. Do work with the Lord. Give your, get, re-examine your heart and give yourself back to him. Spoiler alert, these guys are going to follow God. Spoiler alert, God's going to do some amazing things in these guys' lives. And I believe he's willing and wanting to do those things in your life as well. Let's pray. Jesus, for those who are far from you, who you are drawing to yourself right now, Jesus, I ask that, God, you would give them the courage to, to come to you, to genuinely surrender their lives to you. Jesus, I ask that, God, you would, you would guide their hearts, Lord. Help them to come to you saying, God, I give myself to you. I am all in with you. Jesus, I pray that you would save them this morning. Lord, for those who are far from you, Lord, I, I pray that, God, you would not only give them the boldness to pray uh, and give themselves to you, but, Lord Jesus, I pray that, God, you would give them the boldness to speak to me afterwards. Lord, Lord, I, I pray that, God, you would help them to become disciples and passionate followers of Jesus, God, disciples who are growing uh, as, as believers, but also who are making disciples. Lord, for those who have gone wayward, those who have gotten distracted, those who have gotten discouraged on this mission, Jesus, I pray that, God, you would help us to radically reprioritize our lives today. Convict our hearts. Bring us to repentance as you would see fit. Lord, for those of us who let ourselves be distracted by the baubles and the things of this world, by the paneled houses of this world, Jesus, I pray that, God, you would bring us to true and genuine repentance. Let us live for you. Let us let you be our only desire. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, God, for saving our souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.